Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Well, today I would like to begin a new study of the book of Titus. Uh, Being the elder in the bullpen, so to speak, uh, I'm available as the need arises uh, to fill in at the pulpit on a Sunday morning every now and then, which is a role that I really enjoy having, by the way. So I hope you're not going to be in a hurry to get through this book of the Bible, but Lord willing, we will work carefully and joyfully to get through this entire book going verse by verse in God's timing, and I'm so thankful for that. I'm going to follow David Cannon's suggestion from the last time David preached of how we can read the Bible better, and that's by knowing a little background on the book we're studying. So I'm going to give you a little background here on the book of Titus. Titus was one of Paul's closest and most trusted companions. In fact, Paul helped lead Titus to Christ. And if you remember the book of Galatians, which was the last book that I preached through, Titus was probably the uncircumcised Greek that Paul brought to Jerusalem in chapter 2 of Galatians, where he became the test case on the matter of Gentiles and liberty from the law. As part of my introduction to Titus, I hope you will allow me to sidetrack just a little bit here to make a certain point. And in my sidetrack, we're going to reminisce about a movie that probably many of you have seen, especially around Christmas time. The movie is It's a Wonderful Life. And it's recognized by the American Film Institute as one of the 100 best American films of all time. It stars James Stewart as George Bailey, a man who in his youth dreamed of traveling the world. But along the way, he's made sacrifices for other people that meant he never got to leave his small town. Now he's a weary, broken man who through no fault of his own is going to be declared bankrupt. So he stands on the town bridge about to commit suicide. Man, that's a really sad movie, isn't it? But then George's guardian angel, Clarence, intervenes. Remember Clarence? The angel gives him a vision of what life would have been like if he'd never lived. And George sees that his life counts and that it has made a difference and that he truly lived a good life, a wonderful life, touching the lives of many people in small but decisive ways. Well, in many ways, and this is the reason for this movie analogy, this is what Paul is doing in this letter that he writes to Titus. He's giving Titus and us a vision of a life, as in the movie, that touches people in small but decisive ways. A life that has eternal consequences. He is setting out the truly good and wonderful Christian life to Titus. 
this young pastor, Titus, faces the huge assignment of setting in order the church on Crete. Crete is the largest of the Greek islands. And Paul spread the gospel into Crete after his release from Roman imprisonment. And he left Titus there to finish organizing the church. This setting in order of a church is very similar to what we have been doing here at WCC for the last five and a half years. We have been setting in order Walton Community Church. In this letter, you will see Paul encouraging and helping Titus organize this church by advising him in many different ways. For example, by advising him to appoint elders, men of proven spiritual character in their homes and businesses on Crete to oversee the work of the church. But elders are not the only individuals in the church who are required to excel spiritually. Ordinary men and women, young and old, each have their vital functions to fulfill in the church if they are to be living examples of the doctrine they profess. So to our college students and to our youth group here in this church, you are on my heart this morning. This letter from Paul to Titus should also encourage you to be living examples of your faith wherever God has placed you. You should be able to find application in these words from Paul in your life. And always remember that you have a vital function in our church. And young people, our church prays for you and your Sunday school teachers, and our prayers include you being living examples of your faith wherever God has placed you. Your church loves you, and we will continue to pray for you. So throughout this letter from Paul to Titus, you will see Paul stressing the necessary and practical working out of salvation in the daily lives of both elders and the entire congregation, young and old. Good works can't save us, but they are desirable and profitable for all believers. So let's, let's look today at verses 1 through 4 of the first chapter of Titus. So please follow along from your Bible or from the screen as I read. This is Titus 1. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is God's word. Let's pray before going any further. 
Father, we, we thank you for this Lord's Day and this time of worship here today at this local church body of Walton Community Church as we strive to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the book of Titus and for the many teachings it provides on living godly lives in your honor and glory. Thank you for the life of Paul and for entrusting him with the truth of the gospel of grace. Thank you that your word is true and it never fails and that you determined before the foundation of the world to redeem mankind from their sin by grace through faith in Christ. Thank you for sending Jesus as the incarnate word who lived a perfect life and died and rose again so that we might have the promise of eternal life through faith in him. Meet us here now in this place. Give me the words to say, to proclaim your word rightly. Use this time for your glory today. We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, if you could put that first slide back up there just for a little bit, thank you. Um, I want to share just a little more backstory of Titus, specifically on these first four verses that I read before we start digging into them verse by verse. Paul is not a man who wastes words. And in his letter to Titus, in his very first sentence here, which seems to go on forever because it runs from verses 1 to 3, we see it is rich in gospel truth. And it says sets before us the goal of gospel ministry. Verse 4 then tells us that Paul is writing to Titus, his younger partner whom he had left in Crete and has been part of his mission and ministry teams in the past. Paul describes him as my true child in a common faith in verse 4. And verses 1 through 3 are a description of that faith that they have in common of the grace and peace they share. And Paul lays a claim here in the opening of this letter as to who he is. And he does this in many of his letters. And Paul calls himself here an apostle of Jesus Christ, meaning he was sent by God. The word apostle is used mainly in two ways in the New Testament. It is used to refer to pioneer church planners. Barnabas, for example, is called an apostle in Acts 14.14. 14. But the more significant and the most prominent way it is used in Scripture is to refer to the people who were witnesses to Jesus and whose testimony is the foundation of the church. And those were the original 12 Disciples, the 12 apostles of Jesus, with Judas being replaced by Matthias in Acts 1, verses 15 through 26, plus Paul. Paul had not known Jesus when Jesus was on earth, but he had met him on the uh, Damascus road, and he received a special calling directly from the Lord as the apostle to the Gentiles. So in what sense does Paul use the term apostle here in Titus 1.1? 1, 1? Probably both. 
He has seen the Lord and he has planted several churches. Now he writes to Titus, both as the man who had planted the church in Crete and as one of the foundational apostles. Paul begins by describing the nature of his apostolic ministry. In one important sense, this ministry was really unique to the apostles. The testimony provided by the apostles could not be replaced by other people when the apostles died because the next generation had not known Jesus directly. The apostolic testimony became the main way to spread the good news at first and it eventually was replaced by the written account of their testimony in what was to become the New Testament. So several of Paul's epistles have a concern with the issue of succession and so does this, this one that we're going to be studying. Paul has planted churches in Ephesus, Galatia, Corinth, Crete, and, and others. And it's estimated that Paul planted over 20 churches. And he's now concerned to ensure that leaders take over the care of these churches and that those men are leaders who will be faithful to the true gospel message and to the gospel task. Paul knows his ministry will soon be coming to an end, so he needs to prepare Titus now to be one of those who take over his pioneering role. Paul's description of his ministry in the opening verses here uh, is given to set a model for Titus, for the church in Crete, and really for all churches throughout history. Maybe this is why Paul doesn't list first that he was an apostle, a role unique to his generation and the result of a specific commission to him from Christ. But Paul's first and foremost description, look what it says here, is that he is a servant of God, literally a slave of God. So the model of ministry here in Titus is a model for all the servants of God. Paul is looking back and he's looking forward. He's looking back on his ministry and trying to ponder its foundation and he's looking forward to the ministry of those who will succeed him to give them a pattern or a model to follow. This model is what is to be the heart of gospel ministry and so this letter provides us with an opportunity to ponder our lives and the life of our church. So what then is the model of gospel ministry that Paul outlines at the beginning of Titus? Well, let's look at verse 1 together and begin to find out. I'm going to read verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul's opening verse here in Titus 1 has a lot to unpack. And it may be a little confusing when he says Paul is a servant and an apostle for the faith of God's elect. He's talking about the goal of his ministry, to bring those whom God has chosen 
to saving faith. Paul preaches the gospel to everyone, but he's confident that those whom God has chosen, God's elect that he mentions here, will respond with faith. And faith brings people from real death to real life. Everyone please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 in your Bible, just for a moment, there are some verses in Ephesians 2 that really tie in well with this opening verse in Titus. And I think they'll help in explaining this further. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That means that we were spiritually lifeless before God saved us. We had neither the desire to change nor the ability to change. Preaching to us was like preaching to a corpse. Imagine seeing a dead man in the street and going up and asking him to improve his life. No matter how persuasive your arguments might be, he wouldn't change, right? Of course not. He's dead. It's the same with preaching the gospel. No matter how persuasive our arguments people will not turn to God on their own because they are spiritually dead. And I'm sure all of us know people who seem to be spiritually dead, maybe even close friends or family members. Yet the spiritual death is not the end of the story. Continuing in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We were dead. You and I were spiritually dead, but God made us alive. That's how you and I were saved. He breathed his spirit into our hearts and gave us a new birth. The spirit gives us the desire and the ability to respond to the gospel. He turns our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh because God made us alive. We were able to hear the gospel and respond with faith. That's why we continue to pray for our spiritually dead friends and family members. Maybe even for someone in this room today. We don't give up on them because God may still save them. God could still breathe his spirit into their hearts. With God, all things are possible and it's all by his grace, his will, and his timing. Continuing in Ephesians, look at uh, the next slide here, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. It's not a result of anything we do, so that no one may boast. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, 
But God has to give us this faith. It is not our own doing. It's not of works. And he does this by making us alive through the Holy Spirit. Why are some people saved and others not? Pastor Jeff mentioned this a few Sundays ago. Why do some people respond to the gospel with faith and other people reject it? Is it because Christians are more clever or more godly or more deserving? No, it's all of grace. We are saved by the graciousness of God. It is always and only because God chooses to give us life by giving us faith. God saves his elect. This has always been the way God works. Even in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel proclaims God's word to a valley of dry bones. Remember this event in the Old Testament? The dry bones represented Israel. Israel is spiritually dead. They are unable to live for God. Ezekiel preaches and then something happens. The bones reconnect and flesh covers them. They may have looked more human now with the bones connected and flesh restored, but they're still dead corpses. It's only when Ezekiel calls on the breath of God to come that things really change. God's breath or God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, breathes life into the corpses and they become God's people. That's the sovereignty of God in salvation. That God is sovereign over everything, including our salvation. That's a biblical truth. Reformed churches have spoken on this doctrine and have believed that Jesus' death on the cross was both sufficient and efficient. It is able to save the equivalent of a thousand worlds full of sinners. It's sufficient. But it actually saves every last one of those that God intended to save. God's elect. It's it's efficient. But some people still have a difficult time accepting God's sovereignty in salvation for various reasons. Some people, for example, think that the sovereignty of God in salvation acts as a disincentive for any type of mission work or evangelism. They say something like this, why should we even preach the gospel if people's responses are ultimately in God's hands? But for Paul, it it really had the opposite effect, I think. He knew there were people out there whom God had chosen to make alive. All they needed was someone to preach the gospel. And he could be that person. If he preached, then those whom God had chosen, and scripture says before the foundation of the world, would put their faith in Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. It might be a long process, but God would save his elect. All Paul needed to do was preach the gospel. When Paul first visited Corinth, he started as he normally did 
by preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. That was kind of his MO. But the book of Acts tells us in Acts 18.6 that the Jews opposed, they threatened, and they reviled Paul for his preaching of the gospel. So out of concern for his life, Paul left the synagogue and set up shop right next door in someone's house. Many people were saved during that time, but nevertheless, Paul seems to have been discouraged or weary or even scared. Then one night, the Lord spoke to him in a vision, as we see in Acts 18, 9 and 10. Thank you, Brent, on top of those slides, brother, that's great. And he says here in Acts 18, do not be afraid. This this is the Lord speaking to Paul. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. As a result of this vision, Paul taught God's word in Corinth for another 18 months. What enabled Paul to keep going in the face of these threats, it was the knowledge that God had many people in the city. And the same is true today for our city of Monroe and for the surrounding areas that are represented by all of our church membership. God has many people here in our Monroe area. If we preach the gospel, then God will give them the faith to respond. Sometimes those people may look spiritually dead, but many are God's elect. And if we share the gospel, then God will use that to bring those people to new life in Christ. We can't tell which are God's elect, but we can share and preach the gospel and let God handle the rest. That's the beauty of God's sovereignty and salvation. It's up to him. It's not up to us. I hope that explains a little more the meaning of God's elect as we come to the conclusion of verse 1 of Titus. Um, Can we go back to, uh, yeah, Titus 1.1. Thank you, Paul. We're kind of like we have the same brain this morning. Thank you for that. And that's verse 1 again. But Paul doesn't stop working for the faith of God's elect once people are converted. Another goal of Paul's ministry, as he says here, is godliness. Paul was a great evangelist, but he wasn't content with people simply coming to faith. He labored to ensure they would grow in their faith too and grow in their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. In other words, conforms to godliness. Paul doesn't simply want Christians who believe the right things. He didn't travel around the Roman world totaling the number of decisions for Christ he had seen in his ministry. His goal was not simply people coming to Christ. His ultimate goal was people whose faith bore fruit in godly living. His goal was not converts, but disciples. For any ministry that we are involved in, that we're supporting financially or praying for, that should be our goal too. Paul is not simply describing his ministry. He's providing a model for Titus's ministry and for ministry in every time and every place, including ours here at WCC. 
So having outlined the goal of Paul's ministry, which should be our goal as well, and remember, the goal is the faith and the godliness of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Then Paul continues in verse 2. Verse 2 says this, In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. Faith leads to hope, and hope sustains faith. Tim Chester wrote, It's like a virtuous cycle. The more we trust in Jesus, the more confident our hope will be. The more confident our hope, the easier it is to look beyond our present circumstances to trust Jesus. It's a cycle. It's a virtuous cycle. There are cycles in many different areas of our lives. When I was a high school band director for those many, many, many years, I knew, I guess, from experience that if I got my students, if I got them excited about being in the band, they would eventually develop a pride in the group. And excitement would lead to pride, and then pride would make, more, would, would make band more exciting for them. It was a cycle. Well, here in Titus, we have a, a spiritual cycle. Connecting verses 1 and 2 of Titus, the faith mentioned in verse 1 leads to hope in verse 2, and hope sustains faith. Paul is setting Christian ministry in its proper context in this verse. Now, this is important. And what an amazing context it is. It's from eternity past to eternity future. What Paul does and what Titus is to do and what we are supposed to do here at WCC is set the context of forever in our hearts and minds. What we do now reaches forward into the eternal future. We work in hope of eternal life, as verse 2 says. What we do today has eternal implications. It bears fruit that will last into eternity. Ligonier Ministries, not too long ago, had a national conference entitled, Right Now Counts Forever. And that's the gist of what Paul is saying here. Christian ministry is really like a building project. Paul tells us about this building project in in 1 Corinthians 3. Let's look at that slide. And here's what he says here. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Take our church building, for example. From the best we can determine, this church was built in 1926. That's nearly 100 years ago. And after the many recent renovations that we've done in the church, all of the skilled craftsmen who have worked here have set our church's foundation 
and structure was very well built. And it still looks great after nearly 100 years. Other buildings around us were, were apparently made more cheaply because they didn't last nearly as long as our church building has. So like our church building, Paul urges us to build for the long term. But he has in mind the really long term. He urges us to build with eternity in mind. If we build well by building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, using gold and silver, as 1 Corinthians says, then our work will last into eternity. But if we build badly using hay and straw, our work will be consumed by the fires of judgment. The, the phrase eternal life here in verse 2 can literally be translated as the life of the ages. And Paul goes on to say that this eternal life was literally promised before the ages. It's from eternity to eternity. What we do in ministry reaches forward into eternity future, but it also reaches back to eternity past. What you do in ministry has eternal implications. And what you do also has divine implication. It goes right to the heart of God the Father's love for his Son. Paul says in verse 2 of Titus, eternal life was promised before the ages began. That's before the beginning of time. To whom did God make this promise? Think about that. Who was around to hear a promise made before time began? Well, Ephesians 1, verse 4 through 6 help, helps us here. It says... He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. So he, God, chose us in him says Paul. God the Father chose us in God the Son. All three persons of the Trinity heard that promise. God the Father made a promise to his Son. He promised him a bride. He promised him the church. He promised him you and me and all of those that have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. He did this in accordance with his pleasure and will. It was his pleasure to choose us. God the Father has such, had such pleasure in his son that he chose to share that pleasure. He created and recreated us so that we could share his delight in his son. And the son died so that we could share his experience of sonship and be loved by the, his father with the same love that the son receives this grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time we are saved not because of our merits but because of God's purpose and grace and again this grace was given to us as we said before time began in Christ Jesus the one he loves your faith has eternal implication and your faith has divine implications. It is the fulfillment of a promise 
from God the Father to God the Son. Tim Chester said this, the Father sees you now and delights in the work of his Son. The Father loves you with the love he has for his Son. The Father chose you so you could share the joy of the triune God. And the same is true for our church, and it really makes it personal for us. WCC is from eternity to eternity. Nothing is more significant than this. In fact, nothing more important has happened here in Monroe, Georgia, than what has happened in our church for the past five and a half years and in every other faithful church in our area. Nothing. That's why we include praying for faithful churches in our area every Sunday as part of our corporate prayer. I hope you've noticed that in our corporate prayer, which Pastor George usually leads us in. We feel that's something we should do. We pray for these local churches because nothing more important is happening in our area than what is happening in our churches. When you think with that perspective, it's a pretty big incentive to be a church every Sunday morning, isn't it? When we read of of space-based telescopes, like the Hubble telescope, or the James Webb Space Telescope, and we see them detecting cosmic explosions, and we read scientists saying, that's the biggest event ever witnessed by human beings. Well, that's not quite true. And as Lee Corso would say on college game day, on Saturday mornings, not so fast, my friends. Someone becoming a Christian is an even bigger event. Your conversion, now think about it, your conversion was an event that was planned in eternity past and will last into eternity future. Conversion is that utterly amazing. And even a massive cosmic explosion doesn't compare with the death and resurrection of God's own son. And then it gets more amazing. The next slide will be Luke 15.10. Listen to this. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What's the reason for this joy in the angels when someone repents and someone is saved? The reason of this joy is because there is someone who has been rescued out of the hands of Satan and added to Christ's kingdom. How would you complete this sentence? Let's go on to the next slide. God who never lies promised the hope of eternal life before the ages began and at the proper time manifested it blank. Fill in the blank. Again, God who never lies promised the hope of eternal life before the ages began and at the proper time manifested it. How does God manifest or make clear the hope of eternal life? How would you fill in that blank? Maybe your answer would be Jesus. God has manifested the hope of eternal life in Jesus. And that would be a good answer. That'd be a very good answer. But look how Paul completes that sentence here as we move on to verse three. God who never lies promised the hope of eternal life 
before the ages began, and here's verse three, and at the proper time manifested it in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The hope of eternal life is brought to life in preaching. The eternal promise of God appears when we share the gospel. Eternal life appears at WCC and in the Monroe area when we speak about Jesus. I hope this verse is encouraging to all of the men that are on the rotation to preach from this pulpit here at WCC. When preaching occurs, the hope of eternal life is brought to life. God's purposes are all about Jesus from eternity past to eternity future. God's plans are brought to light in Jesus. And where can people see him today? They they can't go to Palestine and see him healing the sick or walking on the water anymore. So how do they encounter Jesus? They encounter Jesus in our words, in our evangelism, and in our preaching of God's word here on Sunday morning. That's why it's important to invite folks to our worship service especially those folks that might not be saved. As you speak the gospel to someone and they hear it, eternity enters history. Christ is made present. People meet him in our words. They hear that it is Christ's life and death that becomes the ultimate embodiment of what love should be. When we look at his life and his attitude and all of his dealings, we have a breathtaking model of the kind of life we should live. That is a wonderful life. And Christ loved us so much that he bore our sins on the cross. He bore the penalty that was meant for us, turned aside God's judgment, God's wrath from us, and he canceled sin. He restores the brokenness of our lives. He rebuilds shattered relationships. The new life that we find in Christ is granted to us out of the sheer grace of God. It is received by faith, not by works, as people hear the gospel and then repent. We repent of our sins and we turn to Jesus. We confess him as Lord and bow to him joyfully. The gospel is truly good news, church. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. It is making Christ present and real, and then eternity enters history. I alluded to this earlier, but our our church, WCC, celebrated our five-year anniversary just this past year. Five years is a big accomplishment for a church plant. So many church plans don't make it to five years. And we know that it is all due to God's grace here on this church body. But those five years have been of eternal importance. They have sealed the future of some of our folks here for all eternity. And some of my grandchildren being a part of that. A plan that God has been devising from before time began, came to fruition when those people responded to the gospel with faith. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, we pray that you would respond with faith. And please let one of the elders know 
before you leave today so we could pray for you. Today, though, could be the day of your salvation. Your future could be sealed for all eternity and the right time could be now. These last five years at WCC have only been a moment. The next five, 10, 15, 20 years will be too, but what a moment those will be. This, this is a moment when eternal stories will be told and eternal lives will be sealed. It's a moment when Christ will be shown through our words. All right, we get to the last verse today, verse four. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul is just simply stating that Titus is his son in the faith, not his real flesh and blood son, that Paul most likely led Titus to Christ, and that Titus evidently was one of Paul's most trusted disciples and one who probably knew Paul's innermost thoughts in ministry. And this verse was a typical closing of Paul's opening statements in his letters, and he uses those typical remarks of grace and peace to you in this letter to Titus. So what Paul is saying, to kind of wrap it up here, what Paul is saying in these first four verses of Titus today through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that first, God chooses people to be saved before the foundation of the world. These are God's elect. Second, he commands people to proclaim the gospel to them. And finally, third, he says that the hope of eternal life has been manifested through that preaching of the gospel. People hear the gospel preached and respond with faith. Our God is a saving God. He gives us the privilege of telling others, of preaching to others, of sharing the gospel to others. He gives us the command to tell others. And I need to be reminded of that command just as much as anyone here. And as we tell others, as we share the gospel, eternity enters history and Jesus Christ becomes clear to people as the Holy Spirit does his work in God's elect. That is the plan of salvation from scripture and isn't God's plan good? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the saving faith that comes through hearing the gospel through the preaching of your word. May this be the day of salvation for someone here today. Holy Spirit, change hearts today. Please help us to keep in mind the importance, the eternal importance of what we do here. Or when we share the gospel really at any time, your ways are perfect. Meet us in a special way now as we come to your table. You are mighty and glorious, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.